The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Ali Willis, welcome to In Discussion. It's a pleasure to have you sharing your life and work with me today. An absolute pleasure to be here. Well, thank you. You had the good taste to have me. <laughs> As usual, I sort of draw a line in the sand and I start at the beginning because I, I love our listeners to know how you've evolved with your work and your life. Mm-hmm. I'd love to start off here by going back to Detroit and those uh, the ways of life and, and, and also looking at that whole Motown influence. Can, can yeah. we start off in that area? Yeah, you know, I grew up in Detroit in the 50s and 60s, and those, especially the 50s, were absolute golden years for Detroit. Um, You know, the automobile had revolutionized the, you know, 20th century, so it was exciting to live there and just see these incredible shapes and colors and, you know, kind of be at the pinnacle of that. And then in the um, 60s was when Motown rose. And that had a more profound influence on me than probably anything in my life. I used to drive on uh, the weekends. Once I got my driver's license, I would drive um, down to where uh, the studios were, which were just two teeny little houses. And I used to sit out on the front lawn, and you would see all the stars walk in, and you could hear uh, background vocals and bass lines, you know, because the walls were so thin. It was just these little houses. So I just became obsessed with it. And to this day, I don't know how to read, uh, notate, or play music, but, you know, I just hear everything in my head and start to hum or pound two pencils together and then get everything down, you know, in the computer, literally finger by finger, note by note. Were there any particular artists in Motown that really stuck out for you? Um, I really liked everyone. You know, at the time, my favorites were the Supremes. I just loved those. It would probably be more which songwriters I was attached to. Holland, Dozier, and Holland, for sure, you know, number one. I absolutely loved Ashford and Simpson, Norman Whitfield, you know, Marvin Gaye probably, and looking back, you know, is to me the quintessential artist that came out of there, Smokey Robinson, really everyone. It was such a family thing, and the city of Detroit had such pride about having it there. It's a very, very different town now, is it not? It's a very different town, but I still think it's an unbelievable town, and I think it's prime to also be the city of the 21st century if it 
restructures itself in the way that sometimes you get these incredible opportunities to kind of resurrect out of the ashes. So it's a sort of a rebirth period in a way. Yeah, and there are a lot of people living there. Um, I live in Los Angeles, so but there are a lot of people still in Detroit who are very dedicated to rebuilding the city and reconceiving it as, you know, a very green city. I mean, they're talking about actually... Um, you know, there's so many areas of the city that are bare. Um, so turning the whole middle of the city into farmland and um, attracting businesses um, that want to be a part of, you know, this evolving new century. So if the powers that be win, it could be great. Otherwise, it's just another American city that was really stupid and short-sighted and focused on one industry and wasn't paying attention when um, things like the electric car and, you know, alternate sources of fuel and, you know, it was just too big, bloated, and arrogant. And then, you know, the whole city fell, complicated by a lot of very crooked leadership. Um, but, you know, again, out of the ashes, miracles can rise. So Absolutely. we'll see. It's a very soulful city. So uh, I'm praying something happens. I've got to say, you know, looking at your work, you're extremely creative, but you're, you're creative in a, in a really cutting edge way because you're managing to take all of that background, all that traditional lyrical flow that comes out of that music and out of that era. And then you've applied that to cyberspace and been very successful with that. How did you do that? How did you evolve into that? How did you make that work? Well, uh, first of all, thank you for saying all that. I, I never think people notice that, so I, I really appreciate that. You know, my thing was I never did anything by the book. I wasn't schooled at anything that I did. So um, songwriting became very frustrating to me very fast. I... Um, you know, my my original job out of college was that I got a job writing copy, meaning anything from the backs, you know, the liner notes on albums to uh, print ads and radio and television commercials for all the black artists and all the female artists on Columbia, which at that time, all of that was lumped into the minority category. And that included everyone from... Earth, Wind, and Fire, to uh, Barbara Streisand, uh, Lord Nero, Sly and the Family Stone. So I, I came up kind of writing commercials. Um, that felt very limiting after a while, as exciting as it was, because I got to meet all these people. And there was a song... It was actually an English artist named Gilbert O'Sullivan. Oh, yes. Yeah, 1972, Alone Again Naturally. Yeah, yeah. That song blew me away, and I was on a bus one day, and it kept going through my head, and I scribbled out a lyric. But, you know, I wrote my own lyric to that melody. And then I called a friend of mine who played piano and said, you know, have you ever wanted to write a song? So he came right over. We were very naive. He brought the sheet music to Never Can Say Goodbye, and um, which was a you know a Jackson song, and uh, uh, I think at that point Barry White, I think, and um, 
we started at the back, the last chord in the song, and he just played the chords basically backwards from the front of the sheet music to the front. And I've always been very good at being able to spontaneously hum melodies. So I just kind of followed him. We had our first song. And, um, you know, it took uh, uh, six years before I had my first real hit, which was September by Earth, Wind, and Fire. But um, I just, I get bored doing the same thing for too long. And I was always looking for freedom in music, which you don't necessarily have if you're just a songwriter. You are writing to try and get records. And if you're writing with and for an artist, you're writing basically what they want to hear, not necessarily what you want to hear. Yes, yes. So... You know, songwriting, once I hit, like at the beginning of 1978, I was as close to being on welfare as you could possibly be. By the end of that year, I had had sold 10 million records, but the money was so delayed that I was actually still on welfare. But what happens when you hit, then everyone basically wants the same song out of you. Yeah, yeah. And... So that, I knew I was in trouble there, kind of at the height of that first wave of hits for me. Um, because it was getting, you know, it was boring. And because I didn't know how to play, I was always kind of limited by how good, how, or how well my co-writer played. Um, and I a lot of times couldn't express what I was hearing in my head. So I turned to other things. I, you know, I started painting um that kind of took off right away in terms of people starting to buy the work then i felt like the painting and the art gallery scene was just too kind of quiet and conservative for me so i started motorizing my work to the music like you know finding a mechanic who could take all these little figures and cars and buildings I was drawing and, you know, put gears and motors on everything. What, what about Gilbert O'Sullivan, though? I'm interested in that because he was very understated in the UK. I mean, he did really well, and I can remember he he, he actually got a couple of number ones. And well, he, yeah, and, and he only had two huge songs that I can think of, which is Alone Again Naturally and Claire. But he was so, he was a performer as well, wasn't he, that made him so special? Yeah, I didn't see that. I mean, I remember seeing him on shows like The Midnight Special and things like that. I never saw him in performance. I just thought Alone Again Naturally was such an exceptional song. I mean, to this day, it's still one of my most favorite songs. Melodically... Lyrically, it was very different. Um, you know, I'd have to put that in my top ten songs that influenced me forever. You know? What about Earth, Wind & Fire, Dusty Springfield? I mean, people like this. So all of a sudden, you're going from this stage of literally being on welfare, and then you are completely immersed because you're in the business, and I, I know this feeling. And then everybody wants a part of you. How do you? How did you manage to stay grounded with that and 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 keep servicing this, and yet believe in your own creativity and and manage to stay true to that? Well, you know, those are 
very different things, staying in the business and servicing everyone and remaining true to yourself and your creativity. You know, rarely shall those things meet, you know, in the middle, especially if you're a behind-the-scenes person. If you're an artist, if you're the artist themselves, which I had always wanted to be, but it just kind of took another path, you know, but if you're the artist yourself, that's what you strive to. If you're not true to yourself, you have a couple hits and then you fade. But as a songwriter, especially at that time, you know, there are, those are very different goals. So I was in conflict almost immediately as soon as I had my first hit because I realized that, you know, unless I really did stay true to myself, which at some point meant pulling back from how much I was writing, because I was, at that point, I got over 100 songs cut a year, which if I was getting 100 songs cut, I was writing 1,000 songs a year. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, you become extremely popular really fast, especially with something like Earth, Wind, and Fire, which, uh, you know, no one expected a, you know, a white Jewish girl to be, you know, in the middle of all of that. Um, so people really come after you quickly, and they don't necessarily want your creativity. They want another September. They want another Boogie Wonderland. And, you know, once I've written those, I have no interest in going over the same territory again. So another thing that happened to me was because I wrote with so many male groups, um, I think it was assumed that I was just a lyricist, which I was never just a lyricist. But I fell into a trap of having these ungodly famous people start sending me tracks. Okay, so you you so now you are literally put into a a, a box. They, they they see you at one as one person, one creator, and that's what they want you to be. Yeah, especially as a musical person who could not play music, you know. Um, that, you know, it's times like that that I always wished I knew how to play. But any time I sat down to take lessons, as soon as my fingers would hit a key, I'd start hearing melodies. And, you know, again, repetition is not my forte. So, uh, you know, I could not deal with piano lessons or anything like that. So what is it that you had to do to, to overcome those typical human fears of not being uh, pitched into into one box here how, oh, how did you how did you work that it was a exceptionally conscious struggle from 1979 pretty much through this day other than i feel the last few years i've kind of felt settled into all of it, I get it, but I still don't feel like I've been, quote-unquote, discovered yet. Like, I, I would hazard to guess that most people listening to this never heard of me before. You're giving them their Allie Willis education. You know, once people know what I've done, they go, oh, my God, of course I, you know, blah, 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 I know 20 things you've done. But, um, you know, so it, it's a it's a conscious struggle all the time when it first started happening which again was right in the heyday i i probably wasn't off of the hot 100 for at least a year and a half once september hit um 
but I was getting more and more frustrated, and I, I didn't want to end up hating music, which I knew myself enough to know that if I was starting to get bored writing and I continued to do it, I would hate it. So it took quite, really until 1981, so I guess two years, of not knowing what the solution was going to be. Um, I finally... Uh, it was the group Manhattan Transfer. Yes. I had put lyrics to an instrumental song called The Shaker Song that had been a big kind of jazz hit. And they asked me to put lyrics to it. I did that, I think, also in 79 or 80. And they had a lot of success with that song. Then they gave me the average white band uh, track, Pick Up the Pieces. Mm. And um, they gave it to me... It was the day before my birthday, and I'm a huge party thrower. Parties are the one place where I felt like I could take all my interests and basically do them as performance art. So I had this big event coming up, and I got this call. We really need this right away. Will you do it? And in the Shaker song, they wanted, from the opening bar of the music to the end, they wanted an ever-evolving lyric. It was a four-and-a-half-page single space type lyric. I mean, it was more words than I've ever written in my life. So when they gave me Pick Up the Pieces, I figured they wanted the same thing. I mean, that was oh, the thing with songwriters, especially in that day, it's probably still going on. Um, you were kind of taken advantage of. You would be told you were the only person writing a song as soon as you pick up the phone and called anyone else who had a half-decent songwriting career, you'd find out they were writing, too. So you you were compromised all the time? Constantly. Or, you know, they want seven songs, and if you're lucky, you'll get one on. You know, usually it's, it's like zero. So in this particular case, they didn't give me any direction at all. They just said, do the same thing as you did with Shaker Song. So I had a terrible time at the party because I was so distracted, you know, by this song that they needed right away. And when I finally handed it in four days later, uh, literally probably having been up, uh, you know, all but two or three hours of those four days, um, all they had wanted written was the chorus, which is a very different thing that's, you know, than an instrumental that's almost four, four minutes long. Yeah, yeah. So that was the point where I just said to myself, you can't keep doing this. You know, I was getting less and less sense of myself. I was losing myself, and I was losing my love of music. So that's when I really became conscious of, I've got to find something else to do. And what was that? Well, that took three years, but when it hit me, it hit me like a lightning bolt. Um, and that, you know, ended up being painting, which quickly grew to... Um, uh, motorized art, furniture design, set design. Um, but I was, uh, I had gone, you know, I used to live in thrift shops. I mean, now I live on eBay. It's the same thing. But With the art, were there any particular influences there? I mean, could you look at Hockney or, or anybody like that or Sidney Pollock or, uh, or in retrospect look at any influences in, in, from that sort of world? Uh, you know, that has kind of never been my thing. I've never, this is the same thing with music. I have, there's very few artists who I've actually followed. I was, you know, with music, I was a radio person, so I, would, I knew singles. 
as opposed to albums, even though I would buy albums. It was kind of the same way with art. I mean, if anything influenced me in both of those things, it was just pop culture. You know, I loved television. At the time, I loved radio. And anything that was happening, be it music, art, fashion, whatever, I was completely intrigued by what fascinates a crowd. You know, what what is kind of the tipping point for something being something that a few people know to something being ubiquitous that it that puts everyone in an unbelievable mood when they experience it, which I think, you know, when pop culture is at its best, that's what it does. Could you refer that back in any way to the dynamics of the 60s? Uh, yeah, because the 60s were really when all hell broke loose in terms of t- personal self expression and especially for my generation which were you know the teenagers and then you know young adults um you know it was an unbelievable time you felt like you were given freedoms that no one in the world had ever been given and i i'm sure that added to a lot of my um risk taking that rules were meant to be broken you know it was almost like a period though breaking or, or destroying the the establishment the building but but in some ways not knowing what to to rebuild in its place definitely and i was one of those people and i'm still that way i am somewhere in between completely radical and completely straight down the middle and usually people make a decision between those two things you know but i never saw the gap between art and commercialism. You know, I thought the greatest art is something that is so different, it captures your attention and influences what's to come for years to come. But at the same time, you have incorporated something in that is so familiar and so already, you know, something that people are comfortable with that you get this incredible um juxtaposition of the familiar with the unfamiliar well i suppose that that applies as much to that relationship between the arts and the commercial world as much as it does between literature and the commercial outlook yeah i i think with with anything you know you have to be different enough so that someone hears you and you cause a revolution but you have to be familiar enough so it's not completely alien to anyone so I, you know, I guess I don't do it consciously anymore. It comes naturally. But I used to be very conscious of that in the music, especially. Now, I'm extremely interested. You you go through the, uh, the period of the Rembrandts, uh, I'll Be There For You, huge hits. of great interest to me is when you hit the musical color purple was that a, a refreshing period for you well i mean uh, that's funny you asked because they that friends theme song i only wrote that to get out of my publishing deal i owed my publishing company 
a seventh of a song. I don't know how you owe a seventh of a song. <laughs> you know, I, I, I wrote with, you know, a lot of times I'd write with one person and then seven names would appear on the label, like if you were, write, you know, writing for a group. So, um, and I, at that point, that was 1994, I had already been on the Internet for years, and I had already come up with this concept of a, a social network. So, um it was so much trouble trying to explain what the internet was to people, let alone a social network. I mean, no one understood what that was. Um, so, and I was still stuck in this music publishing con uh, contract, and I was not interested in writing linear music. I wasn't interested in anything linear at that point. And I, foolishly so, looked at cyberspace as a place where a pop artist, if you were one of the first ones to get there, could have this enormous amount of freedom because not only were you creating art, it was a very different kind of art. It was a social collaborative art, if you understood really what cyberspace was about and what a networked environment was. It wasn't just about pasting pictures up there or music up there and letting people download it. It was about changing the very nature of the art form itself because all of a sudden everyone is a creator. You're talking about this period of 92, 94 when it's in its infancy. Yeah, uh, 91 to 94. So, so really you're now ahead of your time when you're talking about oh, social I, media. I cannot even tell you how ahead of my time. There were only five music artists who were even working in that domain and most of them were working on things like CD-ROMs, you know, so rather than just hearing their music, you could see their bio or, you know, see old pictures of them. I was looking at, at it as a living space and as uh, a total overthrow of everything, starting with the entertainment conglomerates. I didn't think there'd be record companies anymore. I didn't think there'd be television networks. I didn't think there'd be record stores, radio stations. And in fact, all of those people have completely lost their power, largely due to arrogance. Uh, you know, it's the same thing as Detroit with the automobiles. You know, you think you rule, and you can't imagine anything replacing you. But if it's a social revolution, which is what cyberspace is about, yeah, you will be replaced, you know? What is it about that business now, though, the record business, the iTunes? I mean, I can remember when I was a kid back in the 60s, I would take great pleasure, a great pride of having the shelf in my bedroom and all the, the, the 45s, all the records. Now you have a situation where kids want a quick fix as it were so they'll they'll get mum's credit card and they'll buy an itunes track yeah. and then they'll shed it and then they'll move on what is it about that that the record companies have have missed what is uh, it what they originally missed and i know because i was going around to them in uh, at the latest it would have been 1994 um and the publishing companies saying you know you need a strategy for this. There, no one is going to buy, just like, you know, I doubt that in the 50s they could even have conceived that vinyl would have disappeared. So if you think it was a revolution going from vinyl to CD, you aren't going to know what hits you when it goes from CD to basically nothing, to a file that's stored on a server someplace, you know. No, 
they, they had no concept of any of this. The Internet was looked at as an extremely dorky place. I think a lot of people thought I was ruining my career. How could you throw away a song? How could you walk away from a songwriting career to go to something as dorky as the Internet? I mean, they, they didn't understand that it was an overall complete reorganization of time, space, and relationship. Do, does that not reflect the human position that, that will do anything to defy change? I mean, just as in America today, I think that people are still trying to hold on to what we had five or ten years ago. It's just a yeah. hu- human reaction. Yeah, and it's arrogance, and it's, it's um, not understanding, and you know, you brought up the color purple, and this is one of the things that drew me to the color purple, was uh, you know, ultimately what the color purple is about is, you know, we are all part of one thing. This is one big ball of energy, you know, and it's a very kind of shared planet. I mean, we can all see that now. Anyone who thinks that the oil that's spilling up in the Gulf of Mexico, you know, the whole BP thing, um, you know, is only going to influence what's going on down there is out of their minds, you know. And it's not just a United States thing, it's a global thing. In as much, of course, that everything that you and I do say, look, feel, smile, influences people around you like you, you cannot believe. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, how do, when someone, you're walking down the street and someone just smiles at you, that can change your whole day. Yes. You know? And I think, you know, we, as a species, were not brought up to understand how powerful the individual is just in terms of something as simple as a smile. Not powerful because you have all the money, or not powerful because you're head of the corporation, but powerful because you understand the influence that sharing has and being nice has and being moral has on not just the next person but the next country you know all of it and those are the skills that human beings are largely lacking well it's about finding yourself isn't it because i i've got this incredible man on next week Professor Bill Tiller, extremely well-known, prolific scientist, and he talks about this, and he says that we have a physical reality that we're not aware of, but in order to allow people to change globally, we, we ourselves have got to change first in the way that we view ourselves and the way that we approach other people one by one. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, I mean, one of the blessings, I think, that's happening from all of the crap that's happened in the last few years is that, you know, people are forced to reevaluate their themselves and their relations to everyone else, with the economy falling apart, with the World Trade Center getting blown up, you know, with all of these hideous environmental disasters, you know. Um, most of which are caused by greed. All of it's caused by greed. I think I'm better than you. I want to own you. You know, when in fact, 
what very few people own is themselves, and that's the most precious thing that you could have. And, of course, that leads into the whole issue of codependency, doesn't it? Not in only in, in individuals, but in countries and, and, and so many different things. Yeah, absolutely. Whereas, if, you know, if everyone would just kind of concentrate on themselves, most people can't even make up their mind what they want for dinner that night, let alone what they want to do with their life. But this is going to be something that people are going to have to face up to. There's not going to be any choices here because that's how we're going to have to evolve now, especially with these dreadful circumstances we face in the Gulf and, and so many other things that are happening. We're going to one by one have to look at ourselves, identify ourselves, become very true about our inner selves and then start changing other people around us one by one. Absolutely. Which then, you know, comes back to music and art, music especially, that is such a universal language. Um, you know, I always, even if it may not be immediately recognizable, I was always trying to give the message of um, you are, to a large degree, in control of your own destiny for whatever parts of your life that you can control, take charge now. If you're unhappy, um, like my song Neutron Dance, which was a Pointer Sisters hit, that is really about someone could push the button tomorrow and we could all go up and smoke. So if your life isn't working, just make a change. Um, you know, it's it is up to you, or you will be burning doing the Neutron Dance. I mean, at, at that point, someone pushes the button, you are anyway. But you may as well have a great life as opposed to a crappy one. You know, and so many people are just stuck in these cycles um, that haven't worked for them for years. But, you know, ultimately, for most people, it's more comfortable to be in a place that you're familiar with, even though it's not working for you, than it is to go out and sail to the new world. And this is talking everything about that awful word fear, is it, isn't it? it? Yeah, well, that's, you know, that's the biggest demon of all is fear. And I think most people who strike out in violence or are completely greedy, greedy and egomaniacal and narcissistic have so much fear in them, it's unbelievable. Can you know, the only way they can feel anything is to control everything. And the cutest old around when I beat I would like to just talk about this music video, Hey Jury. Absolutely phenomenal. And I think that there are a lot of more deeper challenges, but more deeper concepts that you have in this than possibly people would understand. You have this 91-year-old female drummer and singer. Are you with that? Crossing generations. What is that lyrically, creatively doing to the message? What that, that you're trying to get across with that? Well, first of all, she just passed away two weeks ago. Oh, that's sad. So I am so happy that I did this. I can't even tell you. Um, for a couple of years, one of my friends had been telling me, you know, there's this 
89-year-old woman. You have to come see her. She's a, you know, a drummer. And I was always very into very quirky acts. And I didn't go when she was 89. I didn't go when she was 90. And finally, when she was 91, my friend, you know, emailed me and said, look, they just put her on an oxygen tank. So if you are going to see her, you need to come now. And I went down to this uh, club in L.A., it used to be like a big underground punk club. Um, and this woman, Jerry Phil, who had been a jazz drummer her whole life, she was discovered by um, one of, uh, by Al Capone's brother. Wow. While her parents were running gin between, uh, it was like Iowa and Chicago. And... Um, she was a drummer in all these nightclubs throughout her whole life and never made records, just, you know, live appearances, but gigged constantly. And in the last 10 years, every Sunday, she played at this club, El Cid. So I went to see her. It was insane. Here was this woman hooked up to this oxygen tank, banging these drums, an unbelievable spirit, knew everyone's name in the crowd. Um, I just thought she had this incredible life spirit. So I knew she would enjoy looking at my collection, because I have collected pop culture, kitsch, um, soul, uh, you know, artifacts, and modern, like 1950s, you know, modern uh, stuff. I've been collecting it since the 60s. So... When I originally asked her over, it was really just to come over and get together. But I thought she, you know, I, it, me who loves to make these quirky videos, how could I find anything quirkier than a 91-year-old female drummer, let alone on an oxygen tank? So I wrote that song in less than a half an hour. It was more like, oh, my God, Jerry's coming over. i got to write something quick. And... She did the drum track in one take, which is amazing for anyone to do anything in one take and to keep the time exactly, you know. But um, she did the drums, and then I built the whole song around the drums, and she had never had all of her old photos in one place. So me and a couple other uh, much younger um, friends of hers went through all her photos and we picked out the favorites and we you know figured out what years they were and then i just started animating but i really kind of did it as a tribute to her and her spirit and that age is just a number because we are all aging at the exact same space you know pace and as someone who used to be horrible about this i mean i always thought i'm the one that's not going to age I'm going to be the youngest one forever, you know. I think that's the arrogance of youth. It's not true. <laughs> and the better prepared you are mentally for it, the better life you have. I mean, there's no question I'm in the like, prime of my life now. I wouldn't, you know, I'm in my happiest period ever. You know, one of the things that I got out of that video was, if we acknowledge this, we're all working hard to find our inner being our way of finding ourselves in order to find other people yeah. and i actually watched that and i i just 
by my background and what I do, I, I do study body language. And I thought to myself, this woman is, she's a spirit that has lost fear completely. She has no fear. 91 years old, she's doing something that probably a, a kid 70 years younger probably wouldn't want to do. She just came over as being such a free spirit. Yeah, she was. She definitely was. It's really hard for me to think of her gone um, because she was that way. And, and, by the way, as I'm sure you know, that's the answer to everything. It's about spirit. And if you don't have your spirit, if you can't get in touch with your soul, which I believe lives on and on long after you're gone, um, you're missing the whole point of being here in this time and space. You know, um, it's about soul and it's about spirit. And you can, you know, spot <laughs> You know, you can put someone on one side of the line or the other. I don't care how much money you have. I don't care how fancy your car is. If you ain't got soul, you ain't got soul. <laughs> that leads me very nicely into Bubbles the Artist. This, I, I had so little time with this programming, but I've gone back to this page again and again and again, looking at this animation, this video. It's unique. It, that, it's a woman thing? Is that it? Yes. Yeah. Uh, now, and, and I thought, you know, I'm looking at this product, and, and we now, as viewers, we take it for granted. You, you've done it. You've created it. It's here for us. But I'm thinking to myself, how on earth did you come up with that concept? It, it, it is very unique, it's very powerful, it's very colorful. It's got a very strong message. How long did it take you to achieve that? Oh, God. Well, first of all, Bubbles and Cheesecake were together a very short time. Cheesecake was um, actually named Holly Palmer. She was in Niles Barkley in the touring band, and um, we used to write together a lot. So we wrote this song, It's a Woman Thing. It was right after The Color Purple opened on Broadway, and I had, you know, I thought, I need to make a life decision here about what I'm going to do. I'm either continuing to writing for other people and always kind of diverting my own thing, or finding something where I can take my music, my art, my love of making videos, my absolute lust with cyberspace, and... Um, you know, do something with it. And when we wrote that song, I thought, this is it. Let me take this song and kind of explore it in all the various fields that I work in. Did you have to approach that differently in some ways? Because you knew that it was destined for the YouTube platform. Were there different methodologies in your head to, to fit into that cyberspace? Oh, well, I mean, you know, I'm someone who never works off an outline. I 
go into record as soon as I start to write. I never write the song and then go into record. It's just turn everything on. Whatever happens, happens. I can edit it together however I want. I never do a sketch before a painting or a set or anything. Um, and in this case, it was just it's just kind of how it evolved. I didn't go into it consciously um, thinking I'm going to express it this way, I'm going to express it that way. And in fact, the video, that was the first video I ever did. When I say completely by myself, I definitely had a couple of animators helping me, but I spent nine months doing that. Never knew what one line to the next was going to be. It was just, you know, the way I naturally just kind of spontaneously go, ooh, this might work, that might work. It's on the run. It's done on the run. And it's the, the, done on the run. And it's something done all on home equipment. So and that was early enough. That was 2006 when I started that. Um where the kind of animation tools that are available today weren't available. So there are close to 70 different characters in that because it's all these figures from Bubbles painting, and Bubbles is my alter ego. So, um, you know, and Bubbles was a very bad artist. Um, bad meaning uh, I'm very intrigued. I get to work around great music all the time, but I'm very intrigued with people who sing out of tune and, you know, basically do these crazy arrangements and somehow always get an audience to, like, follow them. What is it about that second one? The editing is cool. That's, that's talking about that process. Well, that, yeah, that was really me laid out almost in a road map. I am such a firm believer in process, creative process. Like, I'm always more interested in the process than I am in the finished product. So I tend to keep everything I've written on, everything I've scribbled on, um, and I'm way more interested in looking at how it evolved than I am in hearing what it finished up as. So Editing is Cool was meant to be a very transparent look at what it took to make a song and to make a video. So you had a need. You had a need to be able to illustrate to people who you were when you did it, what the challenges were, and, and being transparent about that. Yeah, and on the, you know, my website, you can actually see day-to-day -day progress of everything from the song to the video to the concept as a whole. And we had actually already broken up. We were in the midst of breaking up and broke up during that song because... Holly was, she was interested in being a singer. All the rest of this stuff, even videos, really didn't mean that much to her. She just wanted to gig all the time. My thing was all the conceptual stuff that surrounds it. So we had a very amicable, you know, split. But um, it, it, uh, that was really me doing my own thing to the 90,000th degree. And you know, knowing that some people would be interested and see all the different forms that the video took, and some people will just see the last one. But I knew that last one I had to get, because there's actually eight different phases to that video. But that last one, um, which, you know, I was very lucky that my first few uh, videos always got featured on YouTube, so the numbers really mm -hmm. built. But that one really... Um, gets across my philosophy of 
um, you know, you're the one that has the power to do it. If your life isn't working, edit it. Where are you going to move in the future with that particular project? Oh, boy. I don't know. That's what I'm facing right now. You know, I started, you know, 20 years ago already, this concept for me of the social network, you know, uh, has been brewing. Then when social networks finally took off with, like, MySpace, Facebook, I was in a um, pullback phase where I pretty much dropped out. Yes, I had a website. Yes, sometimes I designed stuff for people in cyberspace. But in terms of being on the leading edge, I had fallen way to the back of the pack. I wasn't even trying. I stopped consciously trying in 1997 because it was so apparent that cyberspace was going the way of Hollywood. You know, it was all about money. It was all about big corporations. Um, And as opposed to the kind of cyberspace that I had envisioned where the artist was going to lead the way and the business models and the technology models would support that, it followed the path that all business follows. How do you think that you can change that paradigm with this in your own world moving forward? I mean, now I think it's accepted enough. There are enough kind of, I'll use the term superstars, that have been born, you know, out of their bedrooms just because they did some kind of phenomenon that caught on virally on the web. So I think people certainly understand the potential for an individual to have as much impact in this day and age as a corporation does. Um, You know, I finally took all my stuff, meaning all my stuff, meaning I'm interested in everything from writing music uh, to doing art to throwing parties to, you know, collecting all my kitsch, you know, stuff. And I took my original concept for cyberspace, which was, It needs to be decorated. It needs to be made comfortable in order for a normal person to see why they should buy space there, basically. So that, I think, has been accomplished by everything from eBay to YouTube to, you know, Facebook. People see, yes, this is a viable living space. Um, So, you know, I thought... You know, the opportunity to completely customize all of cyberspace, that's not here anymore. But my concept about throwing a good party, and all I originally saw in cyberspace was a networked environment where a phenomenal party could be thrown, other than, you know, your guests did not need to live in your city anymore. Um, That what I noticed was, the more inventive the environment is that you bring people into, the more fun they have, the looser they are, the more they're stimulated creatively. So I built the Allie Willis Museum of Kitsch, which is awmok.com, around the crazy things that people collect and love. So if you have an ashtray that you're crazy about, You know, you put that up there, and then a conversation starts about the ashtray, but you very quickly see common interests with everyone that's talking, as you would at a party, 
And then, you know, these branch off into conversations could be about the oil spill, could be about anything. Looking back in the final minute, Ali, it's unbelievable how quickly a program goes by. I know. What are your favorite memories that serve you well? And, then, and what is it that you're still learning today about life and what you're doing and realizing that there's so much more? Well, favorite memories musically would certainly be Earth, Wind & Fire. The first time walking into the studio, seeing them there and realizing this was real. And we wrote September on that first day. It took a, you know, a few weeks to finish, but um, that, um, I think Pet Shop Boys is one of my favorite memories. That was the first time anyone really understood how my art and music could work together because their manager, this was right when West End Girls first came out, their manager had flown to the United States looking for a publishing deal for them. And um, uh, I saw some of my art on the wall. It just started to uh, paint, and my publisher had some of my art on the wall. And so I got hired to come to England to do their portrait. And it was only while they were posing for me that they kind of put two and two together and realized I was the A. Willis that was on all these records they had been collecting because they were so into soul uh, music. So... Um, that's definitely a standout in the musical thing. Um, the Color Purple is an incredible memory. I'm not really into theater at all, but that was such a massive collaboration uh, and a, a story I really believed in. Um, and that, you know, here we are five years later, and I'm still getting to see cast every night, uh, you know, change their interpretation of it. Um, and then, it's just in general, that I had the balls to go for cyberspace before anyone else I knew. Now, is that something that you're still going to concentrate on here? Yeah. Uh, you know, I really see myself as um, an interactive, multi-media artist in the most real sense of the word. So, I'm not even sure what my next thing is. Um if I had all the money in the world, I'd be a lot more sure than I am, you know, but you kind of have to, you have to make your dreams big and then, you know, figure out any possible way you can to get even a piece of it out because you need to work within, you know, economic uh, restrictions, you know, but um, that would be my um, sole purpose in wanting to be a trillion times more well-known than I am because with that comes the creative freedom to construct on a much larger level than you can, you know, when you're just sitting in your own backyard. Ali Willis, it's been a great pleasure today to have you on the program. Uh, I'm completely impressed by the questions you asked. This well, thank you. Far more intelligent interview than one usually has. <laughs> well, I'm going to look forward to uh, to bringing you onto a program again and, and following your work very closely. It's been a great privilege. I do thank you so much. Yes, thank you so much. And to our listeners, I hope that you have enjoyed this program as much as I have. You can gain information on this and any other program in the series at davidgibbons.org. Meanwhile, wherever you are in this world, good morning, good afternoon, and good evening. <laughs>
David Gibbons in Discussion welcomes listeners' comments and viewpoints at its blog at davidgibbons.org. This programming is supported by organizations and firms in the private and public sectors. again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. 